Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Scott Schrum is president and COO of Hennessy Digital, a digital marketing firm that was recently named to the Inc. 500 list of fastest growing private companies in America. Hennessy Digital helps law firms, healthcare companies, and other businesses get found on Google through search engine optimization and paid ads placement. The company operates entirely virtually with about 80 employees in 17 states around the country. Plus, they have workers in Europe and Asia. Scott describes his primary role as translating the founder's vision into reality by coordinating the efforts of brilliant marketers and software developers all over the world. After graduating from MIT, Scott started his career in marketing and product management in the enterprise software space. Realizing how quickly the consumer internet space was growing in the late 1990s, he moved into digital publishing for several years before going back to school to earn his MBA at Northwestern. After earning his MBA, Scott moved into a career in consumer packaged goods brand management, which he credits with giving him many of the skills he uses today. Most immediately before joining Hennessy Digital, Scott ran a well-known national test preparation provider before that business was acquired in late 2018. Scott has had five main jobs since college, all in different industries, giving a broad perspective on how he successfully manages businesses, both large and small. Scott's also a member of the COO Alliance. Scott, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Thanks for having me, Cameron. Dude, I didn't know that you were MIT and Northwestern, so you're one of the dumb guys out there. Yeah. <laughs> I got by on charm in both programs. So. Yeah, I doubt that very <laughs> I doubt that very much. I mean, I got to know you I got to know you a little bit more at one of our last events and and realized how smart you actually were, but I didn't know that you were actually technically that smart as well. What was it like going to MIT? It was very humbling. Uh, it wasn't, I wouldn't say that I was uh, an arrogant kid at all, but, you know, in high school I was used to, you know, I, I would get the highest scores, you know, I did well in the SAT, and then you get to MIT and you're like, wow, if I'm average in this room of people, I am thrilled. Wow. It, was, it was super humbling. Yeah, because I was, I was always average in high school. I mean, I got 70% in everything. I would try my hardest, and I, I never got over 75% on anything in my life. So I, I couldn't imagine being the 4.0. In fact, I didn't even know you could get above a 4.0. Somebody once said they got a 4.2. I'm like, what? How's that even possible? <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't even, I didn't even know that. was. I was like, a 3.0 would have been amazing. But that, yeah, because you were, you were really the smartest kid in school all of your life, probably. And then to go to MIT, you were, how do you, how do you, what happens? Like, how do you get through that? What, what do you have to do as the mind shift for that? Uh, it's, well, definitely you got to take a dose of humility. Uh, you learn pretty quickly that you, you're really going to have to work. You know, it's not, um, there were some classes more than others in high school where I'm like, ah, you know, I kind of, they weren't all that hard for me. And I, and I knew I could get an A whereas at MIT, there's, there's no, you know, gentlemen's, uh, B like, I think maybe some colleges are known for, or, uh, no way to kind of fake your way through the final. It's really, you're, you have to be brilliant. And uh, I don't know if I call this brilliant, you gotta be super smart and you also have to really put into work. Mm. You know, Jim Collins in the book, Good to Great, talked about level five leadership. And I almost think that maybe that's where your level five leadership kicked in was probably that first year or so at MIT when you realized 
that humility and that drive to succeed and the this the the smarts all kind of started to combine did that do you think that's the case and were you were you aware of that like did you become cognizant of that at that age as well uh you know i think by the end of my freshman year i think i kind of did now uh, mit has something where um well when i was there in the 90s the entire first year is uh pass no record so if, if you pass the class you just you get a p on your transcript if you don't pass uh it, it's it's not even on your transcript I think they've since changed it so that just the first semester now is past no record. But the nice thing about that is you realize that there's so much there where the institute wants you to succeed. Mm. It, it, they don't have the philosophy of okay, you're all going to come in and a third of you are going to fail out, and it's just survival of the fittest. It's it's very much not that. Uh, they want you to succeed, and you also uh, you you end up working together with your classmates a ton. Like we would get a problem set from a professor. And we would have, you know, maybe two, three days to do it. And uh, it wasn't a competitive environment at all. It was more of a an us versus them mentality where other students, we'd get together and be like, we're going to work all night on this problem set, but he's not going to stump us. He's not uh, going to. That's great. It, yeah. And and we, I just found myself falling into those habits without even realizing it. And then by the time I was toward the end of my freshman year, I realized I'd I'd kind of found that additional gear, not just in terms of, you know, book smarts, but just working with others or uh, figuring out what I'm good at versus what my friend is good at. And we work together to, to get even more done. It, it was, uh, I don't know how much of that is by design, but uh, I grew a lot in that regard. That's interesting. Tell us, tell us um, a little bit about Hennessy Digital. I mean, I know I explained mm -hmm. it roughly just in the intro, but for some people that maybe aren't as aware of what digital marketing might be, um, although I think it's becoming more and more mainstream, but maybe give us a little bit of a glimpse or an overview as to what the company does and, and what you sure. do for some of your clients. Sure. So we started out uh, as a pure SEO firm, search engine optimization. And within that, we, we started out working with law firms. Our founder, Jason Hennessy, uh, just through uh, just some connections and kind of meeting the right people at the right time, he uh, started doing that for law firms. So if you're, and there's a few buckets of digital marketing that I'll talk about, but doing SEO, that that's probably the hardest bucket to master. And doing it in the legal space is probably the most competitive space uh, you know, at least nationally in the United States, uh, if you're bidding on a, um, just for a point of reference, if you're bidding on a keyword on Google, some of the most expensive keywords in America are things like mesothelioma lawyer and things like that, right? Those can cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars per click. Mm -hmm. So if you, through search engine optimization, can get your firm onto that first page of Google, maybe you could you can pay to be in the top spot, the Google ad spot, but yeah. uh, if you can just be in one of the, you know, quote unquote free spots, uh, down in the lower part of the page, I say quotes because uh, firms spend a lot of money on SEO services to get there. Uh, that's a free click, and one of those clicks that can be worth hundreds of dollars. And a case that case could be worth, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially. So um, that's where we started out. And in the first, um, th the firm is about five years old now. In the first few years of the firm, we were pretty much just doing SEO. Um, it, not uh, it, primarily for law firms, not exclusively. We do have uh, some some clients in different verticals, but essentially we were doing the hardest practice for the hardest vertical, which was SEO for law firms. Um, more recently, we've gotten into the other buckets of digital marketing. Uh, the other big bucket would be uh, paid ads. Uh, and within that, you have you know paid ads, the Google ads, 
or uh, Bing ads, uh, and anything that uh, advertisers do on Facebook, on uh, Twitter, uh, Instagram, uh, those are all, that's all paid media. We made a, a big hire at the beginning of this year in uh, January of 2020 uh, to have a director come in and take over our paid ads business. We were sort of doing that uh, by demand. Some of our clients would ask us to do it. We'd sort of reluctantly take it on, but now we're making a big push into paid ads as well. Uh, and as part of that, there's also social media management. We'll do that for our clients. And we've started to push out into other verticals. So not only legal, we've taken on some healthcare clients now, um, some consumer product companies, and we're getting a little broader there. So and you are following the demand then when the customers are asking for it, if it fits within your sandbox, you're saying yes. Are, are you saying no to some areas? Um, the, the one, I would say with the paid ads, we were kind of saying no. We were sort of resisting, resisting until it finally made sense for us to do it. There's not too much that we've had to say no to yet um, in terms of practice areas uh, for us, practice areas, but uh, some types of clients we've had to say no to just because uh, what what their expectations were and what we're built to do just weren't going to line up. You know, for law firms, this is a very big investment. Some law firms pay us tens of thousands of dollars a month. Uh, there are other you know, say a dentist uh, will come to us and, and he deserves, you know, I had to have a good SEO practitioner too, but uh, just the way they work and the way we work, we're, we're sort of an, an expensive hire for somebody with a small practice like that. So we've had to be a little bit deliberate in terms of who we're serving. Interesting. Okay. Now has SEO changed over the years? I mean, in the five years that, that the firm has been running and, and I guess the two years that you've been there, have you seen any changes happening or is it still largely the same? Uh, it's, you know, it's really changing a lot. Uh, the the hardest thing is that Google is a moving target, and that page, that first page of Google, is a moving target. Google, you know, it's their right, their for profit business, but they've been monetizing more and more of that page, and uh, not only the the top part, the ads, but more and more of the page is becoming less like the typical, you know, when Google launched, it was 10 blue links on the mm -hmm. first page, right? If you mm -hmm. could be the first link, you, you could model it and, and tell uh, a client that they're likely to get 60, uh, over 60% of the clicks. Over time, now you've got the ads, now you have what they call featured snippets, so they'll pull a quote directly from a website. They might have product ads there. They might have the map pack if it's a local-oriented business. So, uh, you know, doing SEO meant one thing now it means being good at uh closer to a dozen things because there's all those there are opportunities but it means you have to target lots of different parts of the page with different tactics you can't use the same tactic right interesting okay so it's gotten much broader than it used to be then mm -hmm. so you mentioned um that, that your role is to kind of make the jason's vision come true can you walk us through how first off what was it about hennessy digital that you saw that you liked uh, that got you to join them because you obviously could have had a pick of lots of companies what was it that you saw about them that you liked and then what was it in you that you think jason saw in you that uh, that brought you on board yeah so jason and i were um, we both happened to live in southern california uh, but we were introduced by a mutual friend in new york and the first time that uh, jason and i started talking you mentioned uh, in my introduction i I used to run a, a national uh, education company. I started as a marketing director there, eventually moved up into the COO role. Uh, but as a marketing director there, I had become very familiar with digital marketing. I was steering our digital marketing efforts, including SEO and uh, paid ads for years. And the first time uh, we met, Jason was 
mentioning a little bit about what he does. And, and I said, Oh yeah, you know, I used to work with, uh, uh, Jim Boykin, who's he's in, in the SEO space. He's like one of the old granddaddies. He'd be like on the Mount Rushmore of SEO. And uh, yeah, I was actually a client of Jim Boykin. I could tell Jason's eyes kind of got wide. Like nobody knows Jim Boykin except for somebody in this space. So I think he suddenly like looked at me very differently. Like, wow, you really actually do know this stuff. And he was describing what he was doing. And just on his phone, he even just pulled up some analytics of some client sites he had. And and my eyes got wide. Like, oh, my God, this guy is the real deal. Because oh. the, the digital marketing space, the, the nice part of that digital marketing is that it's sort of very low startup costs. Uh, the, the bad part of that digital marketing is that means there's a lot of charlatans or um, maybe they're not dishonest, but they're just essentially ineffective. You know, anybody can hang out their shingle and say they're a digital marketer. They're an sure. SEO. Yep. Um, I had, I done it myself. I'd been on the client side. Uh, he showed me some things that right away I could tell like, wow, these guys are the real deal and uh, they're growing fast. I am so impressed. I think in terms of, uh, so what Jason saw in me, there was that one, one thing I just mentioned about how I actually was familiar with the space, but then two, uh, we just got to talking and I was telling him some stories about how we grew my old company, uh, Veritas prep before we sold it, uh, how we had grown that I'd been there over a decade. And I think he, he just, it reminded him a lot of where he was hoping to take Tennessee digital in the coming years. Uh, and, and then we just headed off Interesting. from there. So, okay. So you, you guys really did click and sink in on the, on the, um, both on, on getting to know each other, but I guess on the industry, on the depth of the experience that both of you had. Yeah. So how did you get to really understand the vision of where he wanted to take the company? How did you guys get in sync with that? It's been, it wasn't like one, um, you know, deep conversation or anything like that. It's really been, uh, dribs or drabs. And the, one thing that I really admire about Jason is that he's very, he thinks very expansively. He's very much uh, the visionary. Um, and it's not that I need to draw, it's not so much drawing it out of him, but he'll, he and I will be having a conversation with someone else. And then he'll kind of just take like a side path and start brainstorming. Like we'll, we'll be having a very tactical uh, meeting about uh, accounts payables or, um, uh, forecasting, something like that. And then he'll kind of go off on a tangent and start dreaming up some new big ideas. So sometimes I feel like a little bit like I have to reel in. I, uh, talking to other uh, members at the COO Alliance, I've heard similar stories, you know, where you have to kind of play, uh, mm-hmm. uh, not Dr. No, but sometimes you have to kind of put some parameters. But then other times it's my job. I got to start listening. I got to write some of this down. So I'm like, oh man, wait, we haven't talked about this before, but what he's saying is making a lot of sense about what we could be doing two, three years out. Um, what, I'll give you one quick example. Yeah. Uh, some of the software uh, that we've developed, we, we've developed a lot of, um, of software internally to automate some of what we do. Uh, and much of it, at least, you know, from where I was coming from, I was never looking at it uh, with an eye towards commercializing. It was just sort of, it was making us more efficient and it was allowing us, it was allowing three people to do the work of 10 or 12 people. Sure. Well, in, in conversation with Jason and, um, uh, we have another guy in our team, David, our chief strategy officer. I realized their vision was this is something we could potentially commercialize. Mm. So that made me start thinking about it in an entirely different way. I wasn't looking necessarily as a cost center, but now I'm starting to think of it as, oh my God, this is an opportunity. What things do we need to start doing now so that this is something we might be able to commercialize in a year or two? And those will just sort of come out 
in, in one conversation here or there and I kind of have to be ready. Sometimes I'm the goaltender. I sort of like I'll swat yeah. away an yeah. idea. Other times I'm like, no, I gotta, you know, I gotta take this one and run with it. How do you say no to some of his ideas or not now to some of his ideas? Um, I mean, most, most CEOs are very entrepreneurial quick starts. They, they kind of have yeah. the, the ideas all the time and, and that's their job. But, but sometimes our job is to play gatekeeper or swat it away. How do you say no or not now? I think the honest answer is I think I get a look on my face that Jason and I know each other well enough now when he sees the look, he starts to take his, to his credit, he takes the foot off the accelerator a little bit. And I do try to be, I'm not necessarily the, the quick start. I will ask a lot of questions and I, and I don't want it to, to seem like I'm just shooting holes, right. To, to be the pessimist or the cynic. Sure. Um, I'll start to ask questions and I usually will frame it. So other than the, the funny look I give him, I'll usually frame it in terms of choices. Okay. That's interesting. We have that team. We just set that team to, to work on this. It seems to me that this is something that would have to come in fall into place after we finish that other project or am I reading it wrong in terms of where the priorities are? And then usually we, we go from there and Get in sync you know, there. a lot of the ideas will end up in the parking lot at that point. Yeah. And that's where they should be at that point. So do, one of the things we've done at the CO Alliance is get everyone to do a Colby profile. Have you done your Colby a profile yet? Do you know what I'm not? No, you've not. Okay. No. Yeah. I want to, I'd love to know what your Colby profile is and what Jason's is. There's some really interesting data points between the style of communication and also how you start projects. You said that you ask a lot of questions to start. I'm curious whether your first number is quite high. My guess is you probably are something like an eight, six, four, two. And my guess is he's probably more like a four, three, seven, two. Okay. Um, he yeah. probably, he probably starts, but maybe not quite as quick as some. Um, so I'm, I'm curious where, where we line up with that later. Yeah, we should do that. You guys, so you were a COO before at Veritas and now you're COO now how has your role, you know, Harvard wrote an article about 15 years ago called the misunderstood role of the COO. And they just explained that there's so many different types of COOs. I'm curious how your role um, is different from then until now. Hmm. Um, well, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to start with a similarity. And this is actually, I think, another reason why, why Jason and I hit it off. So <clears throat> when I was at Veritas, it was founded by two guys. I, I reported to them. Um, one was, he was sort of a very much a behind the scenes kind of guy. The other one was a serial entrepreneur like Jason. And, and so Veritas, our, our education company was just one of, you know, at least half a dozen businesses that he ran some he, he, or that he owned some, he ran pretty, he was pretty involved. Others, he was a more of a silent partner. Uh, but over the years, they got to the point where they were comfortable. The one founder uh, moved back home to Norway, which is where he grew up. And the other founder had all these other businesses. At a certain point, they were pretty comfortable handing me the keys, right? And saying like, hey, like we'll check in weekly, bi-weekly, uh, but you've got this. Like just sort of run with it. And uh, Jason is similar in that he has a lot of ideas. He has a lot of little kind of sister businesses that were sort of sprouting up around Hennessy Digital, which is the main one. I spend the majority of my day focused on the one that's generating all the, the revenue and profit right now, which is sure. Tennessee digital. Yep. Uh, and I try to free him up to, to be able to be expansive and focus on, on some of those other things, which I'm also involved in. Um, so I'd say that that's, that's, that's a similarity. Um, one difference for me has been that, um, 
joining this team has been like hopping. It was like hopping on a train that was already running at full speed. Uh, and and the other when I joined uh, my my previous company, they they'd been around a while. They were they were already quite successful before I ever got there. But but especially with Tennessee Digital, it felt like I I was jumping on a train that was already going really fast. Right. And I what I had to do was. I wanted to evolve some of the things that we were doing, but I also had to be smart about adapting myself because I didn't want to just come in and just change everything just because that's how Scott wanted it done. And and I think in the first few months, it took me a lot of learning. Not that there was ever friction, but I had to get with what we were doing and sure. fully understand it before I could ever take out a, a scalpel and do anything with it. How have you adapted then? Or how did you have to adapt? Uh, well, one, I never worked on a on a business uh, serving clients, and and there's a there's a certain cadence to that, right? Uh, if we're a good agency, we're not just being reactive. We're not just living from you know client meeting to client meeting. Uh, but there is there's always a little bit of that, right? If at Friday at five p.m. a client sends an email about you know they're unhappy, then that's what you're focused on Friday evening. Right. Uh, so that was a learning for me. The other thing. Uh, that was a learning for me is that you mentioned that we're a fully virtual company with people spread out all over the country uh, and, and many other countries outside the United States. Uh, that was a learning for me where communication has to be a lot more deliberate. I have to make much more of a, of a concerted effort to communicate and check in because uh, you're just not bumping into people in the hallway. You're not having the proverbial water cooler conversations. That took a little while. It wasn't, um, it wasn't a problem for me, but I realized I had to be a lot more intentional about communicating because uh, otherwise I, there were parts or members of my team that I would just go uh, a week or two without uh, talking to. Makes sense. When you talked about the 80 employees that you've got now, a bunch that are or all of you are remote, how many employees were there when you came into the organization? Uh, we were, so I joined uh, a little less than a year ago. We were closer to 50. Okay. And so now full-time we have 80, if you include all of our workers, we're, we're closer to a hundred. So pretty, pretty rapid growth in one year to double. Um, yeah. I'm, I, w- I want to talk about the double second, actually. What I'm more curious about to start with was, you know, we're in, we're in this stage right now in the middle of this whole coronavirus, and the COVID-19 s- kind of stage of, of business or whatever we're calling this right now, where so many companies have had to go virtual. I'm curious what you guys already know or maybe already took for granted that you can pass on as lessons. Like what works really well to run a good virtual company? And then second to that is how have you had to adapt in this crisis, even though you've had a remote team, have you had to change or adapt at all? We've been very lucky in that this is how we, we operated uh, where I spend hours per day on zoom. That's how my, that's how every day is for me before the word coronavirus was on anybody's mind. So we've been very lucky in that regard. Where it works best for us is that we all are looking at the same scorecards. Uh, we're all looking at the same measures. We use Asana for project management. Uh, we use, uh, usually, um, we're not much of a, of a Slack shop. We, we do much of our communication on Skype, uh, rely less on email. And as long as everybody's looking at the same scorecards or the same, we have a a ton of, um, it's sort of a makeshift CRM. We're building our own client dashboard, but we have our own um, spreadsheets where we have client work, uh, client priorities, uh, snapshots of communications with clients, 
everybody needs to be working off of those same sheets all the time so that there's very little mystery in terms of what's going on. Um, something that we started using, it was actually, I, I think you were the one who mentioned it to us first, commit to three. Uh, we rolled that out for the team uh, several weeks ago, just because simply because Jason or myself, there were people two or three levels down in the organization who are they're working hard every day. They're, I know they're doing good work. I, I can't possibly check in with them every day. And if I'm just getting status reports from managers all the time, then all I'll be doing is reading status reports. All the manager will be doing is, is creating status reports. So we've tried to come up with some other sort of uh, low uh, low time commitment ways that we can get an easy snapshot into what people are working on. And if we think, if things look a little out of whack, then we'll check in with the employer or the manager and like, Hey, you know, you seem to have been stuck on that for the last week. What's going on. That's helped a lot. Um, uh, in terms of what other things that, that companies that we haven't had any stresses really during the, the pandemic, because this is already how we've been operating. Um, the, I would say the other thing, again, being an agency and, and being on the client side, the, the serving clients, anybody who's on the client side, they are in the line of fire, right? Like if there's a problem with the client side or things like that, and they need to have very easy access to the people on our team who can solve those problems. Sure. I think we're okay in that regard, but a lot of times our, our client management team still has to play a lot of defense uh, before they can, we we're able to marshal the resources and get something fixed or, or jump on an opportunity. I would give us like a, a B B minus in that regard. I think we can get better. Have you had to change or iterate at all because of the COVID crisis with your team or how have you dealt with them on communication and, you know, staying in touch with them? I know that you've always used the same tools, but have you had to do anything to communicate with them during this time? So one thing that we do um, is we have a, a Monday uh, morning meeting with the entire team, and this is uh, this is our, our company-wide huddle. This is something we were already doing, but uh, last month, myself and the other leaders, we made the decision, like, hey, look, you know, the only thing anybody on anybody's mind right now is coronavirus. So we're going to, at the, or the start of every call, we're going to give everybody a, a pretty frank update on the state of the business. Um, you know, we're, we're lucky in that, we have had a decline in revenue. We've had some clients, we haven't had any clients quit us, but we've had some clients ask to pause for 30 or 60 days or to reduce mm -hmm. their investment. Um, but, you know, it's it's natural. Everybody's wondering, is my job okay? You know, sure. what's going on with the company? Uh, and another thing I've learned about a virtual business is true of any office is in the lack of, if there's a, a vacuum of information, information just starts spontaneously getting created and yep. it's often the wrong information. I always say in the, in the absence of facts, people make up their own. People make up their own facts. That's right. And especially when it comes to things of people being worried about their livelihood or anything. So we've kind of, we've devoted the first part of those team huddles to uh, very uh, candid updates. And hey, you know, we're applying for uh, one of the PPP loans and you know, we're, we're arranging some financing should things get rockier, but we feel good about where things are right now, but we're taking more steps. That's, that's probably been the biggest thing. Um, we've had um, individual, uh, individuals have come to us with concerns, whether it's, it's maybe they're, they're sick or they, their, uh, their partner is actually is dealing with coronavirus. And we've been dealing with those one-on-one -on -one, and we've tried to deal with those very compassionately, but process-wise and business-wise, we've, I think we're, we're one of the luckier ones so far. Cool. What other um, what other meeting rhythms do you guys have? You've talked about, you know, leveraging your commit to three and some of the time with Jason and the weeklies. What other mm -hmm. meeting rhythms do you have that run the company? 
Uh, we have with my direct reports, I, I meet with them uh, at least once a week. A couple of them, I meet with them uh, twice a week. The, um, the way we're structured, our chief strategy officer has, has a lot of uh, little uh, fingers of the org chart reporting into him. This is actually something we just started doing a month ago. Uh, again, because you got to be so deliberate with the communication, we actually, so Monday is devoted to that team huddle, but the other four days of the week, uh, we do power updates uh, with managers every morning. Uh, and so the chief strategy officer, who has a lot of departments reporting in, he does 15 minutes with each of his department heads every morning uh, other than Mondays. And that's actually huge. Um, it, it, communication flow up and down the organization has gotten a lot better since we instituted that last month. It's almost like the agile computing, right? With the scrums. Yeah, right. Yeah. That model actually works really, really well in operations too. I'm surprised more companies don't do it. So in the in the last 12 months, you said you've, you know, you've doubled the size of your staff really going from about 50 to about 100 in total. Any big lessons that have come through doing that? It's It's definitely true that myself or Jason can't be involved in every discussion and in, in every decision anymore. And to Jason's credit, he's, uh, I, you know, he's, he's let go where, where he's needed to let go. But even since I've come in here uh, and I've, I, like I said, I've been here for less than a year, but I've already had to, to step back from some things. I'm like, okay, you guys have got this, you know, we've got the right team. We've got the process you know, usually worked out. I, I still think we're getting better there in some places. You don't need me to weigh in on every one of these decisions, or I can't, I just physically can't attend every one of these meetings. So sure. that's required more trust for the, the one or two steps down the organization. That's been a biggie. Um, and commit to three was instituted in part because simply now there are corners of our business that I can't, I can't track you know, hour by hour, day by day. And that's probably not the best use of anybody's time. So we've, we've tried to put in these other proxies and try to make that a little bit easier. How about on the hiring and, and onboarding of people? I mean, that's a lot of people to bring on. What tools are you using to assist in that process, especially when you're remote? Hmm. Tools are using, um, well, well, I'll like, tell walk, you one thing that through what did. your recruiting and interviewing process is like. Sure. So, uh, life in that area got, easier when in December we actually hired our first H proper HR person. So she's, and, and she's very good. She's, um, she right now she does everything that you would call HR. So a lot of just, you know, uh, handling employee issues, compliance issues, but she's also the first step in recruiting. So if we're uh, hiring for a position, um, normally we'll go to her and uh, describe, you know, give her, arm her with everything she needs. She'll uh, post uh, the job. She's the initial screen on resumes. We, we've trained her in terms of what we want. It depends on the role in the department. Sure. Uh, what we want. She does that initial filtering. She'll hand off, uh, you know, maybe 5% of those resumes that we collect to the hiring manager. The hiring manager uh, will do uh, at least one interview, often two interviews. Um, one thing, one area where I, I don't think, I don't know when I'll be comfortable giving up, I, from just about every one of those hires, not, not so much some of the offshore people, but any of the U.S. hires, I'm the last interview. So I'll meet with them. In fact, right before um, we got on this call, I just uh, had an interview with a, a potential new hire. And um, that, that's something where I'm a little less 
uh, it's not, it's not a lack of trust of, of our lieutenants, but the culture is just so important. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's hard to undo when you hire the wrong person. Right. Um, so by the time they've come, they get to me, they've already, they've uh, talked to the HR manager. Uh, they've already uh, done uh, multiple interviews with at least one or two directors and then I'll interview them. Yeah. I always call that the sniff test it and Google, they do a good job where the leader has mm-hmm. to interview two layers below them. So you're not allowed yeah. to have like any of your direct reports, clearly you're interviewing, but anyone who reports to your direct reports, you still have to be involved in that process as well. Why are you not involved in anybody overseas? Are there people that are one or two layers below you over there? Or have you just, is that just more lower level admin tasks that are being done from over there? Um, it's, uh, well, actually a lot of the, the overseas team, um, we inherited, uh, I, I inherited meaning they were already here when I got here. Um, and then some of them are, uh, we have some some India dev teams where it's a little more project-based. So we'll kind of hand them the project. They'll come back with the project 72 hours later, uh, such that they're, they're never even really involved with anybody else on the team other than their one or two points of contact within our engineering team. Yep. So cultural fit, it just hasn't, it's, it's sort of not even a concept in terms of that regard. It's just project work. They're more like contractors. Makes sense. How about your skills? Where have you had to grow in this in this role? I mean, you've you've kind of come into the organization. You've been in it right now for the year. Um, you joined the CEO Alliance as a way to work on some of your skill set and leadership development. But where are you focusing on growing right now, and where have you grown over the last year? Yeah, um, I would say one thing that I've I've actually already been learning from you, but um, and I, maybe this is because of the uh, the virtual nature of what we do is. Um, I've gotten better. I still need to get better at running effective meetings. Uh, I, I came from teams previously where we were always physically together. We were mm-hmm. always, we were in such close touch all the time that the meeting um, naturally ran smoothly. Whereas here, a meeting is, has been a little more of an event and uh, running an effective meeting. I, I think I've gotten better at it in the last year, but I still want to, I still need to get better in that regard. I think that's one area. Um, I would say another one is goal setting. Um, I've been, you know, from from the previous roles I've had, I've done consumer goods brand management. I work in technology. I work in education. Goal setting was never a, um, I, I would say, it was never been a challenge. But for me, coming into what for me was a new business uh, with new ways, what to me were entirely new ways of doing things. It made me, uh, I, I have to think differently about goal setting. Uh, and thinking about business goals or, or think about like what's a unit performance of work and what is the right way to to staff for that or budget for that. I, I've had to grow a lot in that regard. Interesting. How about in terms of growing your people and, and the one-on-one meetings that you do with your team, do you have a philosophy or a style that you grow people in or that you, um, you know, you manage them, lead them? Um, my my style, and I, I would even go so far to say it's the company style, is we we tend to give people a lot of autonomy and a lot of leash until they demonstrate that they need, that that's not working for them, in, in which case then we'll start to manage them a lot more directly. So if when, when I do my one-on-ones with people, they pretty much, I expect them to control the agenda. They'll come in and say, you know, hey, you know, I wanted to cover off on these five things with you. And then I might at the end of the meeting, I might have a few things that I want to cover with them. Um, most of the time that works well. And the right people, if we've hired the right people, 
Um, and a lot of them, a lot of our team, or there are some that I inherited, some that I've hired since coming here. They respond to that and, and they rise to the occasion. And when they don't, then we need to manage them more directly. And, and sometimes that means that they're less of a fit uh, or maybe they're not quite in the right role. Interesting. Well, I just wanted one quick question just around when you joined the organization. Were there any decisions that you wanted to make early on and you just held back like in that first 90 day period where maybe you just gave yourself a little more time to to understand the organization or how did you how did you come in in that first 90 days did you have a process or a thought and you know a, a way to actually onboard yourself i was a student and a fly on the wall in virtually every every one of my days my my days were completely full with again we were usually on zoom or Skype, uh, is completely full with just observing meetings. And, you know, I would say the first uh, week or two, you know, they say, oh, you know, who's this guy, Scott? They're bringing in the COO, oh, everything's going to change. And, and they would be talking and then they would say, Scott, is that okay? I would say, I'm, I'm a fly in the wall. I'm not evaluating you. I'm writing furiously because I'm learning. Uh, and after, after a week or two, I, people caught on, like, wow, he really is just sort of learning. He's asking diagnostic questions. Um, I had, I kept a list of things that are like, I, I want to come back to this. Like, I, I don't, like, I, I don't know that there's anything wrong, but I, I don't totally get it. Or, hmm, something that, um, that I uh, instituted in my previous role, I really think that I'm up here. Of those things, probably more than half were communication related. There were just things that I observed that, that I wouldn't even call broken, but just sort of like, ooh, I think I might know what would go better here. And it would be instituting an additional meeting or, or, or creating an additional channel. On Skype, we have all kinds of, um, of chat threads. You know, this one is, has engineering and client services together. This one has uh, marketing and uh, the executive suite together. And uh, creating a lot of those. I, I kind of, I, I would hang back, but I, I kept that list. And as I started instituting, uh, most of them were, uh, the majority of them were communication related and I think people understood like, oh, this is a better. Oh, I'm glad we started doing this. Um, and it, it was little by little, but by, by the end of 90 days, then I was really in, you know, doing a lot more instituting and not just learning. Yeah, I love that you're actually keeping the ongoing list of stuff to come back to and stuff to dig into or and stuff to just go, huh, this is interesting. Instead of like acting or reacting, you just gave yourself time to think about it and then come back to it later. It's super smart. Yeah. And sometimes they were just, um, I hadn't learned the whole picture yet, right? So then I, right. I might come back and be like, oh, you know what? I, I don't know that I can improve on this. I actually, this is not this is not worth our time right now. I, I like this. Let's, and I would cross it off my list. Yeah, that's smart. All right, last question. If you were to go back to your kind of 21, 22-year-old self, you're graduating from MIT and you wanted to give yourself some advice, what advice would you give yourself back then that maybe now you know to be true, but you didn't know when you were just starting out in your career? The thing that I really realized later in my career, after I'd been working 15 years or more, was I ended up learning so many things that I didn't even know I was learning at the time. So when I graduated from college, uh, I, I joined an enterprise software company and I said, you know, I want to, I want to go into software because, uh, you know, that, that's, that's where the, the opportunity is, right? Uh, but what I ended up really learning there was actually I, my role evolved. I ended up doing a lot of business development and, um, some uh, product management. That's not what I set out to learn. Then, um, 
I went to go work for the Motley Fool, the, the financial website. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, I want to go there because I want to learn about digital marketing. But what I really learned that I was getting good at was coordinating the efforts of people in other departments, even though they didn't report into me, I had to get by on persuasion. So then I became fascinated with that. And I said, well, nobody's better at that than brand managers who work in consumer packaged goods. So I went and got my MBA and then I went and worked at SC Johnson. I I was a brand manager there working on um, uh, scrub and bubbles and Ziploc. And, uh, and I went there because that's what brand managers, you know, that's the technical thing I want to learn. And then once Mm -hmm. I was there for a couple of years, I realized, wow, I'm I'm doing more of that um, influencing people in other departments, even though they don't report report to me. And so I always, every job I took, I, I went to, because I wanted to work at this muscle, but then by the time I left, I realized, wow, I actually was really working at this muscle the whole time. And that was maybe the first thing I was learning, but the second thing ended up being even more valuable. And that's continued in my career. That's amazing. I, I, it's funny. I, I was in the, the house painting industry for seven years. Mm-hmm. And when I was leaving it, I met with a group of CEOs and I kept thinking that all I knew was house painting. And they reminded me that I'd built a franchise company in two different countries and had 120 employees. I'm like, Oh, I actually know how to build companies. I didn't right, even yeah. realize that. Right. <laughs> it's so weird. It's like a frog in boiling water. You know, you just, it, it's you, just don't, you don't even notice that you're doing it, yeah. uh, but it becomes a strength. Yeah. It's awesome. Scott Shrem, the president and COO for Hennessy Digital. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. Thank you, Cameron. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.